Well, I know some of you are mourning. Uh, I didn't hear the word, but someone told me this morning when they walked in, said, I'm really emotional this morning. And I go, oh, man, you know, it's kind of a big guy, strong guy. And I'm like, ah, I said, what's going on? It's like Peyton's retiring. (laughs) So those of you that are Peyton Manning fans and uh, he's retiring, there might be some big burly men that will be crying here shortly. So, Uh, well, hey, to talk about the Colts and, you know, that they're my beloved team and uh, I've, I've gone to many games and. And they're my team. But this year, the Colts stunk. I mean, they were terrible. Yeah, some of your fans are, of other teams are going, yeah, they did. Um, they were terrible. Or as Charles Barkley says, they're terrible. You know, they're just terrible. And they were horrible. They were horrendous. They were painful to even watch. Um, they were so bad. And at the end of the year, you might remember that the big uh, kind of, uh, you know, hubbub was that um, Chuck Pagano is going to get fired. And everybody thought, hey, Chuck's gone. We're going to get a new new coach. And they started speculating on who that coach would be. And so I started thinking about it myself. And I had a person that I thought would be a really good coach to come and coach Colts. And uh, it's this guy. Anybody know who that is? Yeah, Jim, yeah, if you're a Michigan fan, you're like, uh, you need Jesus too, by the way. Anyway, <laughs> I'm an IU fan, so I had to say that. Um, but Harbaugh, I really, really like. And uh, he used to have the nickname Captain Comeback because he, he brought teams back and he just had this fire in him. And after he ended his professional career, uh, and he was a former Colt, like I said, he went on to Stanford University and he coached there. And then after that, he actually went into the NFL, and he uh, coached at the San Francisco 49ers, where he took them to the Super Bowl. So I'm thinking to myself, this guy just, like, has to be the coach. Um, But there was only one problem. Uh, As you could see, he was at the University of Michigan. But I was not done yet, because I kept thinking to myself, surely he would rather coach, you know, at the biggest level, the NFL, than in college. And so uh, that was my thought that this would take place. And then uh, a person came up to me who was a big Michigan fan and um, went to several games each year. And uh, he came up and he said, have you ever been to the big house before? The big house is basically just the stadium where the University of Michigan plays. And I was like, no. And uh, he's like, well, if you've ever been there, he said, it's almost like a spiritual experience. And he said, when you're there, it's like I can't imagine a coach would ever, ever leave that place to coach anywhere else. I think we have a picture of it right there. Now, here is what I want you to take a guess at with the person beside you is how many people do you think can fit in that stadium? It's just like a big bowl, and they build it up. So turn to the person beside you and tell them how many people uh, can fit in there, okay? Okay, before you Google it, uh, 
In 2013, at this game, the University of Notre Dame played the University of Michigan, and they had 115,109 people. Now, this is what's ironic about this whole thing. The city of Ann Arbor that the University of Michigan is in only has 113,934. So that city has a venue in which everybody who is living and breathing could actually go and fit in that stadium and they would still have some extra room. Pretty amazing, huh? Now some of you are sitting there right now and you're like, I came to hear about God today. Like, nice little intro about the whole stadium deal, but what in the world does this have to do with anything about God? Well, today I'm going to tell you why this matters, okay? So, in Acts chapter 13, that's the text we're going to look at today. And if you're new to the Bible, you're like, I don't even know what that means. Um, Basically, Acts is in the second half of the Bible, uh, the New Testament. It's from Jesus' birth all the way until we're given the revelation of him returning. And Acts is in that second half, and it's basically a book that tells the acts of the early church. So after Easter, after Jesus rose again and then he ascended to heaven uh, after that, then we are kind of given how the church grew, how it uh, took place. Now, there were two key individual leaders in the church of Acts. They were called uh, Paul and Barnabas. And what Paul and Barnabas did was they were asked to leave the comfort of their home, and they were sent out, the Scriptures say, in the Spirit's power. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus' Spirit, was moving and working through them. And they find themselves in a city called Pisidian Antioch. We have a picture of it here. And uh, it's, uh, in, you see Greece there, and just north is Turkey. And it's kind of like right on the border there, where Pisidian Antioch uh, is located. And that gives you a, a sense of where it's at. So these guys go to this city, they show up to a service that's at the synagogue. That is the place where Jewish people uh, would worship God. And scholars tell us that that particular synagogue probably had about 200 people present. And they walk in, they've never been there before, and I can imagine there was a greeter there greeting them, and the greeters kind of can tell, like our good greeters do, Uh, you know, if you're kind of looking around, you're not sure, you're kind of new. And uh, somebody went up, I'm sure, and said, hey, uh, looks like you guys are new. I don't know if you've been here, but welcome. We're glad you're here. And uh, Paul's like, yeah. He's like, we're new. And then they said, well, well, where are you from? They said, well, we just kind of travel around. And they're like, oh, okay. And they're like, well, have you ever been to a synagogue before? And uh, have you ever studied uh, the Torah before? Now, if you know anything about Paul, he he studied all of this. You know, he's a very, very smart guy. And uh, he said, well, yeah, he said, I've been to a synagogue before, and I studied the Torah under uh, uh, Gamaliel. And when that, he said that word, Gamaliel, all of a sudden, this guy's like, whoa. He's like, I've heard about him. You see, Gamaliel was not just any ordinary teacher. He was like the teacher 
of teachers. He was like the Harvard, Yale, Princeton kind of guy of the Jewish faith. And he had the ability to communicate like, you know, Billy Graham or Joel Olstein or Rick Warren. I mean, this was a top dog. And I can imagine that this greeter is kind of saying, you studied with Gamaliel? Like you studied with him serious? He's like, yeah, I did. And I can imagine the greeter, you know, being new to the faith and just like, hey, I'm greeting people. I need to go tell the leaders. So he runs to the synagogue leaders, the pastors of that particular thing, and says, hey, we've got somebody who studied with Gamaliel. Now look at what happens. All of a sudden, in the middle of the service, like right in the middle of it, the leaders of the synagogue see Paul and Barnabas, who has studied with Gamaliel, and this is what they say. Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Now again, this would be like Billy Graham showing up to the jar. Some of you are like looking around. Is he here? No, he's not here. But it would be like Billy Graham showing up here. And it's like Billy shows up, the greeter's out there, they welcome him. Hey, oh my goodness, it's Billy Graham. I, yeah, and they seat him and say, hey, we're glad you're here. And, and uh, you know, the respectful, the responsible thing for me to do is that if I saw Billy Graham, you know, that I should probably let him speak. And I can imagine someone going up and going, dude, you need to take a week off or a year off because we got Billy Graham in the house, just like move out of the way, bunch. And uh, now... Knowing Billy Graham, and I've read uh, his autobiography and several books of his, he would be so humble that I'm sure Billy Graham would be like, you know, no, 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 you just go ahead. You're doing a great job with encouragement. But when they asked Paul, do you have a word? Paul didn't sit there and go, oh, no, 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 just go. He goes, yeah, I got something to say. He's like, I got no problem saying something. And then this is what took place. He gets up in front of the synagogue and he starts teaching. And when Paul is asked, to teach, he immediately gives a history lesson of the profound movement of God in ordinary people's lives. Not the religious elite, not the people who like were the spiritual heroes, but he's just like talking about ordinary people. And the people hear this and they're like, whoa, like God could use me? Because see, usually in synagogues, what it was about was that the the rabbi or the teacher, the main person speaking, would talk down to the people. That you're not good enough, you don't know enough, just keep trying, but you're never going to make it. But Paul's like, no, 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 just ordinary people God used. And then look at what he says. And we're here today bringing you good news, the message that what God promised the fathers has come true for the children for us. He raised Jesus. Then he goes on to say, I want you to know, my very dear friends, that it is on account of this resurrected Jesus that the forgiveness of your sins can be promised. He accomplishes in those who believe everything that the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, could never make good on. But everyone believes in this raised up Jesus is declared what? What's it say? Good and and before God. I love that. He's like, everyone who believes upon the raised up Jesus is made good 
and whole and right. I want to ask you this morning, are you good and whole and right? Because it's not you taking the religious ladder and doing more and more stuff and being more good and being better and trying to climb your way up morally to God. It is simply about believing in the raised up Jesus who says, then you are made good and right and whole before him. And you know what people do all the time. They keep trying to do things. And they bust it really, really hard to strive and attempt to do all kinds of good stuff so they get connected to God. And Paul just knew that this was happening to these people. And he delivers this message that's never been heard by these people before. That if you just believe in the raised up Jesus, you can be made good and right and whole before God. Folks, being made right with God... It's not about jumping through a whole bunch of religious hoops. How many can we jump through before we get good enough for God? But it is about believing in the story of Jesus. And today, maybe for some of you, today is the day that I believe in the raised up Jesus. Now, maybe for others of you, you're like, well, I've already believed upon him. And this is the question I have for you. Do you remember the first time he came into your life? Do you remember the moment when his grace and his love and his truth just like accosted you and you realized, I'm really loved, I'm cared for? Can you remember when it became real for you for the first time? Well, when Paul uh, finishes sharing this message, the people are like stunned. They're like, whoa. They're like, seriously? God could use an ordinary person like me and I could be in a right relationship with him. And so after Paul speaks, you can imagine the greeting line. You know what I mean? They're like all up there. They're like, Paul, tell us more. Tell us more. What's going on? He's like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And he's like, well, I've been invited back to come back next week and I'll, I'll speak more. And they're like, okay, no problem. Now, seven days later, look at what the scripture says. When the next Sabbath came around, practically the, what's the next two words? What is it? The whole city showed up to hear the word of God. Time out. Time out for a second. Scholars tell us that the synagogue that they were in housed about how many people? Do you remember what I said? 200. They predict that the population of Pisidian Antioch were 50,000 people. So, if you do the math, basically each person at the synagogue would have not only had to invite, but they actually showed up 250 people per person to show up. That would be like this section and this section right here taking everyone in the 47302 zip code, all of the south side of Muncie and part of Selma, and they all show up. That would be like this section and this section 
taking everyone on 47304, all of the northwest section of Muncie, including Yorktown, and they would show up. And guess what? We would still have room for everyone in downtown Muncie, 47305, for them to be here. You want to try it next week? Back to the story. So what happens is all these people begin to start showing up. And again, how many people fit in the synagogue? 200. But there's 50,000 people that are coming. So they do, scholars believe what they only could do is that they go to the amphitheater and they put them there. It would be like a church in Ann Arbor, Michigan saying, hey, we're going rogue this week. Everybody to the big house. And like everybody in that little church, they all go, and they're all there. The entire city showed up. Can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine the energy of being there, of all of these people who didn't know anything about God before? I mean, the band better be on right, you know, on point that week, right? Like Jesus better be elevated in ways you can't believe. You see, folks... When the church gets into the public sector and it gives good to the public sector, that's when the church is at its best. So this little church is now thrust into conversations with all of these people who are living in this city and they have these conversation starters and they have to be transparent and it's a relevant church and everything's going well. But not everybody's happy. You know how it is. You always have some Debbie Downers, right? Some negative Nancys. Some frustrated Freds. And so, not everyone's happy. Look at what the scripture says. But when the Jewish leaders saw the crowds, they were, what's it say? They were jealous and cursed and argued against whatever Paul said. As the people began to start filling in the seats of the synagogue... All of a sudden, you see some of the religious leaders going, that's my seat. You are sitting in my seat. And some people are going, what are you doing here? I've heard this before. People will be, man, dude, the roof will cave in if you come in. Folks, the roof has never caved in. I've been here 12 years. It's never caved in on anybody. Uh, What do you think you are? Why can't they just go to another church? Why do they have to come here? Can you imagine? What if the church, what if the jar was like that? God brings a whole bunch of people to come and we're like, oh man, too many people. Well, you're sitting in my seat. Oh, I might have to stand. Oh, this isn't comfortable for me. Who ate my donut? Somebody ate my donut. I know you. (laughs) But you know what I was thinking this week? I don't think it ever happened in the jar. Because we have people who genuinely want to see all people accepted and loved regardless of where they are at in their walk of life. And uh, these are doors that hopefully people always experience grace. And you remember grace, right? 
It says this, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. That God is just filled with love for anyone who would turn their ear toward him. But the religious leaders in this story, they couldn't celebrate. They're like all upset and angry. You ever notice, you can always tell like overly religious people, because overly religious people, they never celebrate growth. Overly religious people are like, well, how's this going to affect me? It's about me. This is my church. And why is it affecting me? But folks, you can't stop the good news. When the good news gets in and God's word starts being penetrated to other places, the scripture says here that the word of the Lord spread so fast that it not only impacted Pisidian Antioch, but the entire region. And people became disciples, true disciples of Christ. But the religious leaders were so irritated with so many people coming to Christ that they like put it down and they made sure that Paul and Barnabas went on to another city. Now, here's a couple of questions that have just been uh, like stirring within my spirit this week. What stops us from having an only God moment, a Pisidian Antioch moment in the jar? What stops us from being so compelled by the love of God that we long to share it with every neighbor, every coworker, every friend, every family member? every stranger on the street, to let them know that God is amazingly in love with them. So for the rest of our time, what I want us to look at is five kind of steps or processes of how you can take any idea from simply being aware of something to actually becoming an owner. And we're going to look at it through the lens of what it means to live an invitational life. What does it mean to be invitational in my life with other people? So, let's look at number one. It's kind of a movement. So here are five steps or movements that take place in this process. Here's the first one. I become aware of the invitational life. That's the first step. I become aware of the invitational life. I grew up as a PK, a preacher's kid, as many of you know. But honestly, the invitational life just wasn't a part of our DNA. Um, I was a part of churches that were filled with wanting to take care of the poor and do social justice. Both of those things are really important, and uh, we do that here at the JAR as well. We did service projects. We went down to uh, homeless kitchens. All of these are good, and they're important. But we just never talked about our faith with other people. In fact, I was thinking about it that when I was a child and a teenager, I never remember ever inviting uh, someone to go to church. And during college, once I got away from that, I was just like, well, I don't even know if this is it. And so I kind of had this faith crisis. And I really struggled to think that Christianity was the only way. And battled with that a little bit. And... um, I looked at all the other world religions and I thought, man, they have a lot of good points. And then I started reading about 
the crucifixion and what Jesus did. And I started comparing that to all of the other world religious leaders. And there is not another religious leader who ever gave up his one and only life for the world. There's only one. Nobody else did that. And I thought that must be like the person he said and claimed he was the son of God. Only someone would do that. Or they're a liar or they're a lunatic. That's it. C.S. Lewis said, they're either a liar, a lunatic, or they're Lord. And for me, it switched. And my wife Jennifer helped me to kind of get that. And um, all of a sudden then I thought, well, if this is going to be my faith, I want to know how to have an invitation because I'd only been aware of it before. And I actually became a pastor uh, of a small country church, but I was just aware of it. But it was nothing more. And then at the age of 24, I went to a uh, spiritual retreat weekend for men. And while I was there, I experienced the grace of God for the first time in my life, that he loved me no matter what, and that he actually invited me. He invited Chris Bunch. He invited me to have a relationship with him. And he said, by the way, I want you to go then and invite others to this same relationship. I had been invited, I had been given his full grace, and now I needed to share that invitation. So I went from this awareness step to this uh, next step, which was a pondering step. And that's kind of the next step in this invitational life. First, I'm aware of it, that it happened. Secondly, I start pondering, what would it look like? Now, interesting enough, the only examples I'd ever had of the invitational life were all negative. The first one was door-knocking guy. You ever seen these people before? Hey, you know Jesus? Uh, Well, here, here's a pamphlet. Uh, Okay, what's the pamphlet? Well, let me tell you, I'll get you straightened out with Jesus. Door knocking guy. Here's the next one. Uh, Bullhorn guy. I remember as a little kid going into Chicago and there was this guy with this bullhorn. He was just yelling at people. And I remember, because I I remember to this day, he said, turn to Jesus today or go to hell tomorrow. (laughs) And I just saw like all these people like walking by and I started thinking to myself, there's got to be a better way. Like that just didn't seem very successful. And so... I was like, how do you do it in a winsome way? How do you have an invitational life in an attractive way? And so I started looking at Scripture, and I started studying Jesus' life. And did you realize that Jesus, that was what his whole life was about, just one big invitation? From his birth to his death to his resurrection to his ascension, it was all about inviting. And so I looked at his life. And all of a sudden, it went then from being aware to pondering to actually being a value of mine. That it became a value in my life. And I wanted to learn, how did Jesus do it? And I want to do it His way to be a person of invitation. And this is the thing that I realized. Jesus wasn't the only one. That there were other people in the Bible that were doing it as well. So it expressed to me that it was the responsibility of everyone. Not just Jesus, not just the religious leaders, not just the leaders that Christ had called, but it was the responsibility of everyone to live this invitational life. And I was still having it as a value, but it just wasn't being practiced in my life until 
one particular night when I was pastoring at this small congregation. I was sitting on the porch of uh, the parsonage. Uh, the parsonage is basically just a uh, house that the church buys. And I'm sitting on this porch, and there's this traffic that is just going by. And then all of a sudden, I hear emergency vehicles and sirens coming down the street right by my house, two doors down to my neighbors. And this is what I did. I sat there for a while, and I thought, I know why they're going there, because that was not the first time they had ever been to that house before. These people that live two houses down would play heavy metal Metallica music at 11 o'clock at night. And it would wake up the neighborhood and the cops would go and they would shut it down. And the kids that lived in that house, they would go smoke in the church parking lot. And they would smoke and they would flip their buds right onto our uh, newly paved parking lot. And the church people were mad and I wasn't happy with them either. And I remember sitting on the porch and these emergency vehicles are going by. Sirens are blaring. And I get up. And I looked down and I'm like, I'm not getting into that. And I opened the door and I walked into the parsonage. The next day, I get a phone call from a neighbor who attended the church. And she said, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, the, the neighbor two houses down from you uh, is named Ivan and he committed suicide in front of his family last night. Would you go down there and reach out to him? And it still pains me today, but this is what I said. I said, no, I've got a lot of church work that I'm doing. I can't go. And I hung up the phone, and the phone rang a second time. It was the only funeral director in the town, and he called, and he said, "Um, did you hear about this? I said, yeah. He said, well, did you do the funeral? I'm like, no, I'm I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do that. And I hung up the phone again, and I went to my little study, and I remember pulling out my Bible and trying to like really get in with God, and started praying. And in that moment, God like slapped me upside the head. <laughs> now, see, that is an appropriate place for an amen. Some people say amen in not appropriate places. That's appropriate. And he slapped me upside the head. And it was one of the first whispers I ever got in my life. It wasn't audible. It was just in my spirit. But I felt God saying, what are you doing? There are people two doors down that are in great pain, and you are sitting here. And I listened to that response and to that whisper, and I went away from my religion, and I went into a relationship with God. And, and that's all right, you don't have to clap. I was the one who sat on the porch, if you remember, and they all went by. <laughs> don't clap for that. Clap for God, not for me. Um, so, in the midst of all that, I picked up the phone again. I called the funeral home. I said, hey, I'll, I'll do the funeral. And he said, okay. 
And then I walked and I figured it out. It was about 200 yards that I walked two houses down. And when I walked into the house, have you ever experienced this before when someone goes through a tragedy or maybe a death of someone in your own life? And it's just like a fog of pain. Like you can't even, you can't even, uh, you know, you don't see anything, but you just experience like this fog. There was this fog of pain. And I walked in, and there was Maria and her seven-year-old son holding on to each other, just holding on. And I walked in, and I had never met them before. And I'm like hugging them and, you know, loving on them and like snots coming out of my nose, you know. And, you know, God doesn't always do these things really the way you want. And um, And it was just like such a powerful moment. And it was a defining moment for my life when it came to this whole understanding of an invitational lifestyle. And from that moment, it began to change for me from simply being a value to something that we actually had to practice. And I did the funeral, and during the funeral, um, there were all these people that walked in, and they weren't, they weren't our church people. They had tattoos all up and down their arms. The women were makeup all over the place. They all smelt like cigarette smoke. They walked in, and uh, when they walked in, uh, I was like, wow, this is going to be a different kind of funeral. And this was the thing. It was the biggest crowd we had ever had in the history of that church in the three years that I had been there. And during this time, um, I went ahead and uh, I did something that I never do. Um, I gave every single, peop- uh, every single person a picture of Jesus, uh, the famous painting of him knocking on the door. And at the very end of it, I uh, did something, like I said, I gave an invitation uh, at this funeral if people wanted to accept Christ. And so I did it, and all of a sudden, 20 hands like went up. And I'm like, I don't think they heard me right, you know? So, like I said, it a second time, and you have all these people that they're like, uh, we don't know. They're like, do we do it again? So, you know, they're like up and down, and, and they all did that. And again, folks, it finally went from simply being a value to being a priority in my life. And that's the next step. It becomes a priority. That means you rearrange your life, your energy, your talent, your resources to go and to engage with people and to share the invitation of love. You know, sometimes we like to talk about values. We just never make them a priority in our life. But once you make it a priority, then it's a next step right into ownership. You become an owner of the invitational life. And as owners, what we decide and declare is that every decision we make, every decision in my life I make is through the lens of an invitational life. It's just... Not a value, but everything runs through that. So, if you look at all five of these, where do you think the biggest gap is? Aware, ponder, value, priority, or owner. Where is the largest gap that takes place? Well, it's between number three and number four. It's between value and priority. There's like this large chasm. There's like this grand canyon of a chasm, this massive gap from which we value the invitational life, 
to actually making it a priority in our life. So the way I'd like to close is simply by asking you a few questions of where you're at when it comes to this whole thing called the invitational life. Here's question number one. Do you hold the value of inviting people, but emotions like fear and insecurity speak louder? So do you hold the value of inviting people? You're like, I value that, but emotions like insecurity and fear speak louder. When Jennifer and I first moved uh, to Muncie, uh, she was doing her residency, and there was uh, a couple of residents that went through a real painful divorce. And the guy kind of just skipped out and did his own thing, but the girl uh, actually, or the woman, uh, stayed, and she had a little infant. And uh, Jen, like, reached out to her there, and then she said, I think you should mow her grass. You ever notice how people, like, volunteer you sometimes to the invitational life? And so... My job was to mow the grass. Her job was to build a relationship. So I'm mowing the grass, and it was like one of the hottest summers uh, ever. It was like 90 degrees every time I'm mowing the grass. And, you know, I'm praying for her, but I'm not really happy about all of this. And uh, one day she comes out, and she's like waving at me. I'm like, wave, and just keep on mowing along. And then she comes out with a drink, and she's like, no, i got to talk to you. So she gives me a drink, and we're talking. I drink a little bit, and she's like, you know, my life's kind of out of control, and I'm thinking about this whole Christianity thing. Um, what's your church like? And this is what I said. We do good things for people. I put my hand down. I pulled the rope again, started the mower, and kept mowing. Now, this is the question. Why did I do that? Because I got nervous. I didn't know what to do. Have you ever had one of those moments before? Am I the only one? Where all of a sudden you get a prompting or you get a sense or someone, but all of a sudden the person looks at you a certain way or they say something and all of a sudden you're like, abort, abort, like quickly get out of here. You know what I mean? And is that where you're at today? Does fear and insecurity get in the way of you living an invitational life? Question uh, number two, do you hold the value of inviting people, but you never follow up with people outside the first invitation? So you go to someone, you're like, hey, I'm going to invite them into a relationship with God, or I'm going to invite them to church, and you invite them, and they go, no. You're like, okay, fine, good, you know, just kind of like walk away, and that's it. Or maybe they actually say yes, they're like, yes, but you never tell them what church you go to, you never tell them what time it is. And you never follow up on Thursday to go, hey, uh, you know, if you're coming, I could come with you. I could pick you up. Uh, We could meet together. I could meet you at the front door. And I'll tell you, folks, you know what the scariest walk is for people who've been away from Christ or the church for a while or ever? is the walk from the parking lot into the front door. It's the scariest walk. And I've actually gone out and I've stood out there before and I've seen people walk up to the door and no one was really saying anything to them and they walked right back out. That's why we work on our greeters so important. Because it's so important that you meet them there and you say, you know what, we'll go in together. I'll show you where the donuts are. You can have two if you want, you know. And uh, whatever that is, to be able to, to reach out to them. Third question. Do you hold the value of inviting people And you're regularly reaching out to folks, but you never really know how to take them to the next step. 
In other words, you're, you're doing the work, but you just don't know how to take them to a next step. You don't know that First Steps with Chris, for instance, is happening right after this. That'd be a great next step. Or the actual next steps classes where they would learn to know about who Jesus is and what Scripture is about. Or help them to get plugged into a small group or celebrate recovery on uh, Thursday nights at 7 o'clock if you're going through a hurt, have, or hang up. Hey, that's their next step. Or grief share. Or baptism. Hey, maybe they're at a point to get baptized or to become a partner. Again, you're reaching out to other people. You're seeing them come to church. You're just having a hard time helping them take whatever that next step is. Or maybe for some of you, you really are at number four. You hold the value of inviting people up, and you can do all three of those. And you live the life. You're constantly begging God, God, would you help me to listen to someone today? Would you put someone in my path that I could show your love to? Would you put someone around me that I could give your grace to? And at that level, you become an owner. So with those questions, where are you at? When it comes to an invitational life, do you get fearful and insecure? Do you invite people, but you just never follow up to kind of see that you'll meet them there? Do you invite and you see the fruit, but you don't know what the next steps are, or you're an owner? You know how to immediately take them to that next step and to grow more and more closer to God. Well, folks, this is my question. Can you imagine what the jar would look like if every single one of us became an owner? If all of us just had an invitational lifestyle, wherever we went, whoever we were with, and we were constantly asking God, God, would you show to me, would you reveal to me who I could reach out to, who I could love? I think and I want to believe that the miracle of Pisidian Antioch could actually happen in our day. So for Easter, here's my question. Who you invite? Who in your circle of three, three people who are disconnected from Christ or the church, that you could go and you could make invites? They tell us that at Easter time, 60% of all people would simply go if you just invited them. One out of every two above that would actually come if you invited them. And this little card that we have in your program, all of you look there for a second. There's a little card. It looks just like this. This isn't for you to just fan yourself or to throw away, or to make little notes on the backside for your shopping list, okay? This is something to actually give to someone else. Maybe you're like me and you just want some more tools. For the longest time, I didn't know about how to do it. So I went to places where I could learn about it. And next week, we're going to be offering a class called Perfect Blend that you can be a part of it and you can experience how you can live the invitational life in your everyday lifestyle. You know, I'll never forget that night of reaching out to Maria and her family or that next morning. And you know what I'll never forget too? Is that when I made the invite after the funeral for them to come to church that next week, they came. And then they came the next week and the next week, and the next week. And six months later, Maria and her three children were all baptized. And 
I don't keep in contact with a lot of people from that church, but that is one family that I've not lost contact with. They actually live in New Mexico now. And uh, they sent me a picture this week, and here uh, is Maria and her three kids. And um, I was just thinking that, like, this is really life and death. These people will spend eternity, and I'll be able to hang out with them, even though we don't connect very much now. And you have family and friends and coworkers and neighbors who are around you who are experiencing all kinds of stuff, and they're longing for anyone to invite them into something that would be good and right and whole. And you get the opportunity to do that. Now, this is what I want you to know. That picture, that whole thing that I just told you about, the story of what God did in their lives, it's not about me. It has absolutely nothing to do with me. Remember, I was the one on the porch wanting to go inside and get those people out of my life. But it was all about God because God treasures people who are far from Him so much that he will go to the greatest links, even to the cross, to rescue, to redeem, and to restore people into a relationship with him. And you have some Marias and Tonys and Lanas and Kellys in your life who are longing for someone to invest in them. Folks, this is what I've learned. Once you experience this, man, it's the most addicting thing there is. It is the most thrilling. It is the most uh, moving experience in my life. In fact, I've given my whole life to wanting to see people who are hurting to be healed through Christ and have a relationship with Him. And this is what I would say today. Don't be like the religious leaders in Pisidian Antioch. And just kind of allow your faith to sit on the shelf And when new people come in, you get frustrated by it. But reach out to those who are longing to do that. Don't keep your faith under wraps. Be like Paul and Barnabas. Take a risk. Easter's a great time to take a risk. Do it. And what would happen if whoever you took the risk on, that as that took place, that they believed in the raised up Jesus... And they were made good and right and whole. Let's stand for closing prayer. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up. If you'd like prayer for anything, they would love uh, to pray with you. Um, If there's anything that uh, is going on, you want to accept Christ. Maybe earlier you're like, "Ah, I don't know. If you want to do that now, you can. First Steps with Chris is right after this. Um, It's only 15, 20 minutes. It's right down the hallway and to the left. We'd love to meet you. We really do mean 15 or 20 minutes too. Like sometimes people are like, yeah, right. That means a half hour and you're going to talk about more Jesus. I've heard enough. You know, like, no, no, no. We're just going to tell you about the church, where we're going, what's going on. And uh, you'll be out of here. So, um, hey, let's pray. Uh, God, this week, we will walk into our neighborhood or our workplace or our school 
And I pray that you would help us to live an invitational lifestyle. Thank you, God, for stirring in me this week of simply getting a glass jar and filling it with candy and going to all my neighbors and saying, hey, would love to have you come at Easter. So stir in us, God, in such a way that we would be invitational and that we might see, even if it's just an inkling of the miracle at Pisidian Antioch, that it would happen in our day. Let us have that kind of urgency and that kind of faith leading up to Easter. Teach us, God, and send us. We're available and ready. Prompt us this week so that your name would be made great. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, guys. Know that you're loved in this place. It's written on the walls like graffiti, y'all. From the station.